Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. It was the winter of 1986, sitting in the driveway at my mom's house with my girlfriend, Jackie Kinzer. We were not just boyfriend and girlfriend, but we were cruising in a really nice car because she owned a 1983 Renault Fuego, which looks like this. It's a really sweet ride. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? I thought she was the one for me. In fact, I was pretty convinced we had been dating for a few months. I was so much better with her than I was without her. Hard to describe how much better I was with her than without her. And I just knew she was the one I couldn't live without. So I thought it was probably time to bring it up. Not the official proposal on one knee, diamond ring kind of thing, but just see where she was. And so I said, Ever thought about us getting married? And she laughed at me. I don't mean like the, oh, yes, that would be great. I mean the, (laughs) you've got to be kidding. That kind of laugh. She She was not ready, and I didn't understand why. And so I asked, what? And she said, you're too serious. I could never marry you. Too serious? Man, that really hurt my feelings. So I got out of the car, spent a long time thinking about what that meant, that I was too serious, because I didn't want to live without her. I knew she was the one for me, and I kind of thought I was the one for her as well, or I never would have brought it up. And so I thought, what do I need to do? How, what do, I need, how do I need to change so that I can be the man that she will marry. And I began a quest that night that has lasted actually until today of trying to figure out what does it look like to have more joy? How can I be a happier person? I'm really glad to report that not the second time I brought it up, but the third time I asked, she said yes. So that's another story for another day. Um, I'm just, I'm so grateful because I would not be the man I am if not for my wife. I would not have graduated from college, let alone graduate school or be working on my doctorate. I mean, like she would, she would make, after we were married, I was still in college, she would make sure I got out of bed. Like she just, I was useless without her and so grateful for what she has helped me to become. So that quest about becoming more fun, I thought was really important. And so I began to think about our wedding and the reception and what we could do and how that could be fun. So I did a little sleuthing, um, surprised Jackie at the wedding reception. I gave all of the groomsmen in our wedding party some fun clothes to wear under their tuxedos, and then I cued the DJ at just the right time to play strip tease music, and then when it kicked on, all the groomsmen got in the middle of the room, and we started stripping off our tuxedos, and then we started doing a chorus line dance, and it looked a little bit like that. That's 1987 all day long, isn't it? Y'all remember jams, these fun long shorts? that we wore in the 80s, and I had to make sure that the shirts didn't really match but also didn't really clash, 
And so this is my brother Randy and Jackie's late brother Bob and my little brother Rich and my oldest brother Rusty, and that's me, believe it or not, and that's my best man, Mike Miller, who now lives near Atlanta. That was us. We had fun. She said, you're too serious. I found a way to not be so serious. And at that moment in the reception, I mean, the whole, you can imagine, the whole room just went nuts. We laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. It was a blast. I don't know about you, but I'm not done looking for greater joy. In fact, I'm convinced that the church of the United States of America, including Woodburn Baptist Church, needs to become characterized by joy. And I don't mean silliness. This was fun and silly, and yes, it was joyful and happy and all the things. But I mean, I mean God-like joy. Can you imagine what the world would be like? Really, can you imagine it? Can you just try? Like, if every Christ follower in our nation, just, just the United States, if every Christ follower in our nation was somebody that everybody else said, man, they are such a joyful person, what would our, what would our world look like? What would our families be like? What would our churches be like? And so on this quest for a new joy, I found some. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, would you grab your Bible or your device and navigate your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? 2 Corinthians, you probably know, comes after 1 Corinthians. That may make it easier to find. It's before Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all those shorter letters of Paul. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'd like for us to read together a longer passage, the, the end of which is on the screen. But just, I want to go all the way back to verse 7. And let's see if there's some connection between the glory of the new covenant and joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The old way, with laws etched in stone, led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? What's the new way? Jesus. Verse 12. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. Y'all remember the Mission One document that Pastor Tim has been sharing with us for a while now? Bold in verbal witness, perhaps this is a key. Verse 12, since this new way, Jesus, gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away, but the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. 
But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Yeah, there's what? So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Would you pray with me? God, these mysteries are too great for our minds to understand, so we need your help. Give us spiritual eyes, spiritual minds, spiritual hearts, spiritual souls that we might wrestle with and come out on the other side of a better understanding of what this passage means and what it means for us. Help us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. There are three key terms that I think will help us understand what these last couple of verses, which kind of summarize the whole passage. I think if we can understand these three terms, we'll have a better understanding of the verse. If we can understand the verse better, we can understand the application better, and then we can live life better. So all that in mind, let's just go back to three really important terms. And the first one is the word veil. And it appears these two times in that same passage, the veil is taken away and the veil was removed. So when you think about a veil, what do you think about? I think about a wedding. I love that moment in the wedding when, when the, the, the groom and the bride are there at the front and the, and the preacher says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And then the, the groom takes the veil and unveils his wife. And then he says, you may now kiss the bride. And they do. The veil is designed to diffuse or hide the glory of the bride. Because not until that moment should the groom behold his bride in all of her glory. Isn't that beautiful? There are other veils, of course, in the world. There's, there's the veil in the Middle East. Many of you have seen TV shows or movies or maybe now just living in Bowling Green. So many people have moved here from all around the world that you see women walking around with veils that cover everything except just their eyes. And you know why that is, right? Because the glory of that woman's face is reserved for her husband. Only her husband should see his wife in all of her glory. The rest of us don't deserve that. Can I remind you that the church is the bride of Christ? That you, you are a part of the bride of Christ? And God wants to behold you full-faced. He wants the veil taken away so that he can see all of your glory and so you can see all of his. There's the veil of Moses in the Old Testament. I'm so grateful for Manisa, so powerfully and beautifully reading that passage in Exodus 34 where the, the veil is put on Moses' face to protect the people because they really kind of thought, it's so bright, he's going to melt our faces off. So we need something to protect us, something between us because the glory of God that was transferred from God to Moses' face is too much for us to behold. It's really pretty astounding story, and so Moses' vase was covered with a veil. There's one more veil that most of you, church people at least, know about. It's the veil of the temple in, in Jerusalem. Remember the, the veil? Some scholars say that that veil was three feet thick. I'm not talking about three feet wide or three feet tall. I'm talking about three feet thick. Can you imagine how many layers of fabric it took to be able to weave something together in ancient times that was three feet thick. 
But the purpose of the veil was really important. It was strategic. It, it had to keep everybody away from the glory of God that was in the Holy of Holies because if you walked into the Holy of Holies, there was so much of God's presence there that it could destroy you. Remember that only one time a year, one person was allowed to go into that one room and, and they would tie a chain around his ankle because if he went in there, there was every chance that the glory of God would overwhelm him, overpower him, knock him dead, and they'd have to drag his body out. And, and you know, you just don't mess with that stuff. That's powerful. So the glory of God was tucked away in the Holy of Holies. There was a giant curtain or veil that was hung to separate us from God's glory. And at the crucifixion of Jesus, what did God do? Tore the veil right in half and said, no more. No more separation. The death of my son has made it possible for you to be able to get right from where you are to right where I am. The glory of God is now available to us, accessible to us, and we are invited into it because of the death of Jesus. That's amazing. So that's veil. That's, that's the first term. The second term that I think we ought to look at is spirit. Oh, wait, wait. I'm going to go back to veil because I, I now see a cue up there that I really care about and I don't want to skip over. So um, go ahead, Stephen. Bring up these five potential veils. William Barclay, who wrote the Barclay New Testament, really popular in the 70s and 80s, a great simple commentary if you're into that kind of thing. I think you can find them used these days on Amazon pretty cheap. William Barclay says that we tend to put veils back on. Even though God has taken the veil away, you and I have this habit of looking for some way to distance ourselves from God because we're a little terrified of what God is really like. And so we veil ourselves in these ways. The first one he says is the veil of prejudice. Now by, by prejudice, I don't mean that wicked, ugly, evil um, prejudice of racism or ethnicity, shaming or any, like that's, that is a prejudice and the Bible is tremendously against that. It is evil and sick and we should always condemn it. But that's not the kind of prejudice we're talking about here. We're talking about prejudice here of I'm gonna to go to the Bible or I'm gonna to go to God in prayer and I'm gonna have already prejudged what I'm gonna experience when I get there. I'm, I'm not gonna expect any kind of surprise. I'm not gonna read a familiar passage like John 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and see anything new because I've read that chapter 4,000 times. What else is there for me to see? That's prejudice to say, I've already got that all figured out. I know what that story's about. I don't need to go there again. But can I just tell you, as a guy that's been reading the Bible now for somewhere around 50 years, every time, every time I read with eyes that are not prejudiced, I can see something I have never seen before. So it's important that we remove the veil of prejudice. The second one is the veil of wishful thinking. This is the one that Barclay says, you know, you're really looking for something in the Bible or something in prayer with God that is gonna give you what you're looking for. So you come expecting for your wishes to be fulfilled. It's kind of coming to the Bible or to prayer or to God in any way from on top instead of on bottom. Like, okay God, make my wishes come true. Here's what I'm wishing. Please show me a passage that's gonna give me what I wish for. And that's a veil that can really distort our understanding of who God is. The third veil is one of out of context thinking. This is why I wanted to have Exodus 34 read. This is why I wanted us to start in verse seven because if you just grab one verse out of the Bible, you can make the Bible say all kinds of things it was never intended to say. So out of context thinking is a veil that can really mess up our understanding of who God is and what he has for us. 
The veil of disobedience is the fourth one. I don't know about you, but I've had seasons of my life where I was like willfully disobeying what I knew God was telling me to do. And when I say willfully disobeying, I mean like, I don't care what you think, God. This is what I think, and so what I think is right. And then when you have an encounter with God, why in the world would he give you any of his glory? Why would he share his insight, his wisdom, his grace? His, he, it's unmotivating. Now, that doesn't mean, I don't mean that to say that God doesn't do those because he's always compassionate and merciful, slow to anger. And I am so grateful that in those seasons of my life when I was utterly defiant, utterly defiant, God was still gracious to welcome me home. But until I was ready to take off the veil of disobedience, I was not in a good place to experience his glory. And then fifth, an unteachable spirit. And this is the one that I'm perhaps most concerned about, not just for our church, but for the church in North America. It's so easy for us to just think, yep, I know that story. Nothing else you can teach me about that. Or yeah, I understand grace. Nothing more you can teach me about grace. Or yeah, I've got this thing figured out. And if Pastor Tim can't teach you, one of the finest preachers, teachers I've ever known in my life, and certainly the finest I've ever worked with, if he can't teach you, I know I don't have a shot. So it really isn't about coming in having understood, it's coming in seeking to understand, having a teachable spirit. I really want to encounter each of you all of the time with curiosity so I can find out what you're learning about God that I haven't learned yet. And that is a teachable spirit. I think when we come to God with a teachable spirit, he has more to teach us than we can even begin to learn. But if we don't come to him with a teachable spirit, then we will never learn the things that he longs for us to learn. So we keep putting veils on. But here's the good news. While people put veils on, God takes veils away. That's what he does. It's right there in the passage. Jesus takes the veil away. Well, we have to be willing. He's not going to rip it off. He's not that kind of a lover, that kind of a God. He, he will wait for us to surrender and say, okay, Jesus, take the veil away. And then he does because he's a good God. And he wants to take the veil away. Why in the world would we want the ta veil taken away? Because the gospel is good news in that it changes us. And let me just say, I never, ever, 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 ever have thought better of something that my life can become than what God thinks my life can become. So if God knows that my life can be better than I know it can be, then the gospel, the good news, the glorious news that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose again, reigns with God the Father, all for me, all to forgive me, all to extend salvation and grace to me, that turns me into somebody better than I was before every single time. The gospel is good news because it changes us. I think that's really important about this passage. So, veil, number one. Number two is spirit. Very interesting in this couple of verses that the word spirit appears three times. If you notice when I started in verse seven, it's all over the passage. The Holy Spirit has a huge role to play in this passage. The Lord is the spirit. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed from glory to glory, some translations say. The spirit has a big role to play. So if you're new to church life or new to this Jesus thing of um, faith, any of that, I, I just want to 
give you a, a really short and simple, not nearly profound enough explanation of what the Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity or the third person of the Trinity. God is one, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father is all God, Son is all God, Spirit is all, all God. This is a really lame analogy, but for the sake of a little bit of understanding of, of our humanness, I'm a guy, I'm just a man. But in some relationships, I'm a son, and in other relationships, I'm a husband, and in other relationships, I'm a father. I don't change in the, because of the room I'm in. I'm, I'm still just me. I'm, I'm just Rod Ellis, the worship pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, a lover of Jesus. But I'm a son of Jim and Kay Ellis. I'm a wife to Jackie Ellis, and I'm a dad to Catherine and Emily Ellis. And the manifestation of my presence is different depending on the room I'm in. If, if I'm with my parents, or was when they were still living, then I had one kind of relationship with them. And if I'm with Jackie and it's just us, I have a very different relationship with her than I had with my parents. And if not, then we're doing it wrong. And the same thing with my children. If I'm relating to my children the same way I relate to my wife, then I'm doing those things wrong too. And so it's not that I'm different, I just have a different role. God is very much the same way, only infinitely bigger and more profound and more mysterious. There is one God, but he manifests himself as a father and a son and a spirit, or as a, as a creator and savior and sustainer. And the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is all God all the time. You can't get any more God than the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. I think it's amazing that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, we are told that the Spirit dwells in us. Did you know you were possessed by a spirit? If you ever run into somebody who's possessed by an evil spirit, can you tell? At least in the movies you can. And yes, you absolutely can. You know something's not right with them, right? Well, if you can tell when somebody's possessed by an evil spirit, you probably ought to be able to tell if you're possessed by a Holy Spirit, right? So if you and I are possessed by the Spirit, and according to 1 Corinthians 3.16, we are, then we probably ought to behave like we're possessed by a Holy Spirit. What does that look like? I find this really interesting. In Acts chapter 2, the early followers of Jesus, are, they're accused of being drunk when actually they were just filled with the Holy Spirit. So evidently, being filled with the Holy Spirit looks a little bit like when you're drunk. I'm not sure what to do with that but find it interesting and maybe behave a little less inhibited than I am otherwise inclined to do. In Ephesians chapter five, it says, don't get drunk with wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. So again, Paul now, not Luke who wrote Acts, but Paul seems to see another connection between drunkenness looks a little bit like possession with the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not exactly sure what to do with that other than take away from that that I probably need to be willing to look a little more silly a little more often. Maybe even bold in verbal witness when it doesn't make any sense to anybody else. The spirit that resurrected Jesus is alive in you and me. Romans 8:11 says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's a really powerful spirit, right? We're not talking Casper the Friendly Ghost spirit. We're talking mighty, mighty, mighty spirit. This spirit raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit lives in you and in me. 
There are a lot of names throughout the Bible for Holy Spirit. I think this is fascinating. I wish we could talk about them all, but we don't have time. I'll just give you a couple. One of them is advocate. I love that the Holy Spirit is an advocate. He comes alongside of us and makes an argument on our behalf so we don't have to make the argument. Ever been in a courtroom? I, I was privileged when, in my 20s to, to serve on a jury in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I was actually, even though I was a really young, I think I was the youngest person in the room, they elected me the jury four person, which was kind of weird and freaky and terrifying and also really cool. And um, it was so interesting to be in the courtroom and watch the whole trial play out and see the attorney on both sides express what needed to be expressed for both sides. Now, if the state of Ohio had been represented by the state of Ohio, it would have been a messy message. They had one person set aside to be the advocate. And if the defendant, who was guilty by the way, if the defendant had tried to make his own argument, it would have been really clumsy and he would have been found guilty even faster. You and I have an advocate and that's the Holy Spirit. And he will argue for you. He will defend you for you. You don't have to be defensive. He's got your back. There's another name for the Spirit in the Bible, and it's the Comforter. Oh, I love this so much. The Holy Spirit is the Comforter. I don't, I don't often get cold, so I don't like the big heavy down comforters that you pull up, but sometimes on a really cold night, and you pull the big comforter on you, and you just feel warm and safe and secure and at rest. The Holy Spirit can be that for you anytime. The Holy Spirit is amazing. And it's important, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in us becoming more and more like Jesus. One more term, since we've got veil and spirit down, I want to talk about glory just for a couple of minutes. And again, if you go read the whole passage, the word glory or glorious is just all over this passage. Just a couple of times in these last two verses, see and reflect the glory of the Lord and then changed into his glorious image. The New International Version says changed from glory to glory. And so I have wrestled for a very long time trying to understand what in the world is glory I mean, the old people used to call heaven glory. I guess we still do when we sing some of the songs that we sing. Heaven is glory, but what does that mean? I don't know that that makes sense to me. The Kind of the easiest definition for the word glory is weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, weight, something that's really heavy. The glory of God is heavier than anything else. So I want you to imagine every good thing you've ever done in your life is just makes up a giant lake because you've done a lot of good things in your life. So you put them all together, it's a giant lake at the bottom of a mountain. If there were a tiny pebble at the top of the mountain and it bounced off and fell into that lake and that pebble was the glory of God, it would displace every bit of water in that lake because the glory of God is infinitely heavier than the glory of what you and I have done. That's kind of interesting. That helps me, but it doesn't really get me there. So I did some more reading. I, I looked at some of my favorite authors, including Dallas Willard, a, a professor back in the day at USC, and he was a professor of philosophy, and, and he wrote that glory is the magnificent outpouring of the radiant splendor of God's power, strength, beauty, and goodness. I, I love magnificent outpouring. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just an outpouring. It's a magnificent outpouring. God's splendor in power, strength, beauty, and goodness. So now it's starting to have some dimension. It's not just weight, but I can get a little bit more grasp of what glory is. It's all of those things and more. And I still wasn't satisfied, so I went to another author. I, actually, I went to a whole lot more. We don't have time for them all, but one of my favorites is Frederick Buechner. Frederick Buechner was a, an, a, um, an ordained minister who never pastored a church. 
Instead, he was kind of a pastor to pastors. He would write books and sermons that he would give uh, at seminaries and colleges like Harvard and Yale. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. His novel, Godric, was nominated um, for the best fiction. It's a really weird book, by the way. I've read it. Um, anyway, Frederick Buechner also talks about glory, and he says, glory is to God what style is to an artist. Did you hear Joshua playing the piano today? There's a style Joshua have that's, has that's different from when Brittany plays or from when Carlos comes and is our guest and plays or, or anybody else. Like Joshua just has a style that is all Joshua. Have you ever seen Tim Harris do a, a painting on his iPad or a drawing on his iPad or, or a painting that he's painted? Tim has a style that's different from everybody else's style. Glory is to God what style is to an artist. The style of an artist brings you as close to the sound of his voice and the light in his eye as is possible to get this side of actually shaking hands with him. In other words, you can't really have a relationship with him, but if you can see his style, you still know something about him. And then Beekner goes on to say, glory is what God looks like when for the time being, all you have to look at him with is a pair of eyes. And so he gives you some things to see, like a sunrise or a sunset, or a woolly worm, or an eagle, or a horse, or a newborn child, or a reconciled friendship. And he gives you eyes to see his glory. Is it starting to make sense, the glory of God? I don't know that I'm there yet, but at least... At least I feel like I'm getting closer. There's one more illustration that really helps me from the Old Testament. When the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and trying to get to the promised land, they didn't know the way. And so God sent a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Those were those are the glory of God on display. So God's glory can show us the way. Or also in the Old Testament, especially in Chronicles, but also in Isaiah and other places, in the temple. For the people of Israel, sometimes the glory of God would manifest itself so profoundly that it was like smoke filling the room and everybody had to leave. They couldn't stay. The glory of God was so heavy, so strong, so palpable, so real that they had to leave. D.L. Moody was walking down the streets of Chicago one day, famous preacher from a century ago, and, and Moody was just talking to God as he's walking down the streets of Chicago and says, God, show me your glory. Please, God, show me your glory. And then God does. And Moody falls to his knees and says, okay, God, stop. Please stop. you got to stop. You're going to kill me. The weight, the beauty, the glory, all of this is something about who God is. And now we have a little better understanding of some terms, veil and spirit and glory. So let's go back to the passage one more time and see what it looks like. For the Lord is the spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Why did I highlight in yellow us and all of us and we? Because this doesn't happen in isolation. This happens in community. We have veils removed when we are with each other. Nearly every reference in the New Testament where you read the word you, Y-O-U, is actually y'all, but the Bible translators feel like that's a little too redneck, so they don't put y'all in there. But the New Testament is not written to individuals, it's written, written to communities. And when we read it, we should not think, oh, that applies to me, we should think that applies to us. We don't have veils removed in isolation. We have veils removed in community. And, and I also have to tell you that veils aren't removed by me taking away. Veils removed by God taking it away. 
God tore the veil in the temple, and God takes veils away from our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our souls. Now, let's do a little exercise. This has been a little heady, a little professorial kind of college thing, and I'd love to move away from that and get practical for a minute. So take your current age, however old you are right now. You know how old you are, right? Got it in your head? Divide it in half. Can you do that? So if you're 80, that's 40. If you're 40, that's 20. If you're 20, that's 10. If you're 10, that's 5. I'm 57. It's about 38. Can you remember 28? Can you remember? <laughs> I, was, I was usually good at basic math. The advanced stuff, not so much. Can you remember what life was like when you were half your age? I'm looking at some college gals over there. Can you remember when you were 9 or 10? What were the great songs on the radio? What were the great TV shows you couldn't wait to watch? What were the movies that were the best movies ever and you couldn't wait to go see them? Do you remember life half your life ago? Now, do you remember what you were like half your life ago? I am convinced that if we will follow Jesus and walk in the Spirit, that we will be very different a few years later than we are now. If I look back at 28-year-old Rod, y'all wouldn't have hired him. He was a jerk. I'm serious. I'm not sure you'd hire me back now, but I don't think I'm a jerk anymore. I mean, that's just amazing to me to think of 20, like half of my life ago, I looked nothing like I look now. On the outside, sure, I used to have hair and a beard and a mullet. I mean, all the things. I used to have all of that. But I'm talking about the soul look into my life. I am so different from half my life ago. And if we are following Jesus, if we're walking in the Spirit, you will be made different. It's inevitable. Now, it might not happen in a day or two or a week or two or even a month or two, but if you go back a ways, you can kind of tell, yeah, I used to really struggle with that, and now, gosh, I don't even think about that anymore. Or I used to never think I could be that way, but now, gosh, that's kind of the way I am now. And that's what following Jesus and walking in the Spirit will do for you. So why does does all of this matter? Because here's a veil I want taken away for all of us. I want to love people the way they're becoming, not the way they used to be. I want to love people the way they're becoming, not the way they used to be. I want you to love me the way I'm becoming, not the way I used to be. I want to love you the way you're becoming, and not the way you used to be. So, this is the part I get to read, because if not, I'll talk way too long, which I have already done, but even more so. This, when I asked Pastor Tim if I could preach, this is what the passage said to me that I felt like I needed to say to the congregation. I want to apologize for the ways I was not much like Jesus when we started our journey together nearly a decade ago. I didn't listen well, I was far more reactive than responsive, sometimes even being dismissive or angry. And most of you would never have seen me being dismissive or angry because that was on the inside. And in church world, we're really good at hiding the evil on the outside and looking shiny and pretty on the outside. So that dismissiveness and that anger, you didn't see that because I was hiding it. That doesn't mean it wasn't sin and it wasn't real. And I'm sorry. I sometimes acted more like a consultant than a pastor. I tried so hard to convince you of all that I knew rather than seeking to understand all that you knew. I was stubborn, I was arrogant, and there's more, 
And I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wish I had been more like Jesus than, than I was. And I'm sorry. I'm really grateful for the ways that I'm like Jesus now that are more than I was a decade ago. It takes a while. It takes a minute, as the kids say. Can I also just let you know that you're probably different now from a decade ago, too. And it's really important that if we're going to do this together, we give each other grace and space to be able to grow in Christ together. The places where I blow it and the places where you blow it, we've got to give each other room to come back and say, okay, I blew it. Or, hey, you blew it. I love you anyway. I'm going to give you grace and space. We're going to take time. We're going to get to, we're going to, get to be more like Jesus together than we would if we were on our own. If we don't recognize we're on the journey together, we will forget to give each other a chance to grow. And I'll say it again, I want to love people the way they're becoming, not the way they used to be. And I want that because that's how God loves us. He loves us the way we're becoming, not the way we used to be. We are becoming like Jesus, and when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't look at us and see our sinfulness like we were before Jesus. He loves us the way we're becoming, not the way we used to be. And I want to love you that way too. And I, can I just, I want you to love me that way too. I think we'll be better together if we'll do that. So how do you do it? How do you get to a new joy? How, what is all this? How does it all come together? There are three things and they're really short and we're done. The first thing is you turn your eyes upon Jesus. You look at Jesus. He's your forgiver. He's the reason you're able to forgive because he forgave you first. Do you remember the old hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Would you sing with me? Look full in his wonderful face. And then what? And the things of earth will grow strangely. How does that happen? In the light of his glory and grace. First, you turn your eyes to Jesus. Second, you ask the Holy Spirit for help. He wants to help you. He is a helper. It's one of his names. He's a helper. It's what he does. So ask the Holy Spirit for help. And then just forgive. By the way, I have learned the secret of forgiveness. You know how to forgive? Anybody know? You forgive. And then you forgive again. 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 And sooner than you think, you begin to, you begin to wish good for that person rather than wishing evil for that person. You just choose. Time after time, day after day, thought after thought, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive. Forgiveness is unique to Christianity. We are forgiven because of Christ, and therefore we forgive others because of Christ. And nobody else in the world does that. Just us. And you know what it's like on the other side of forgiveness, right? It's joyful. It's joyful. When you and your spouse or you and your child or you and your parent or you and your best friend have an argument and then you make up, what's on the other side of that? Joy. Greater joy than you knew before the fight. Every conflict is an opportunity for intimacy. Every choice to forgive is an opportunity for greater joy. So look at Jesus. He's your forgiver. 
Ask for help. The Holy Spirit is your helper. And choose to forgive. And I'll close with this. We are never more like Jesus than we see like he sees, forgive like he forgives, and love like he loves. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are being transformed from glory to glory, from the glory of creation to the glory of Christ-likeness, from the glory of being made in his image to the glory of looking a whole lot like Jesus. And we're never more like Jesus than when we see like he sees, forgive like he forgives, and love like he loves. And when we do, and when we do it together, there is greater joy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for making us in your image. That is a mind-bending reality. To be made in the image of a holy, beautiful, perfect God, I, I still can't get my head around it. Thank you. And thank you for making us to become like you more and more, day after day, choice after choice, moment after moment, relationship after relationship. Help us in this journey that you have called us to. Help us to surrender to having the veil taken away so that we can see you face to face and reflect your glory because of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We're going to sing a song called May This Journey. It's all about what we just talked about. I invite you in any way you want to respond to respond. We'll have deacons down front who will pray over you, anoint you with oil, and ask God to bring healing to your, to your body if you need that. Pastor Tim and I will be down front. We'd be glad to talk with you, pray with you. Whatever it is God is calling you to do, you just do it as we worship him together. He is worthy. <laughs>